to the COL Roundtable, powered by PFI Advisors. Here's your host, Matt Sonnen. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. I hope you enjoyed the first part of our inaugural episode, which featured Jeff Furman of Coastal Bridge Advisors and Tony Cron of Sandhill Global Advisors. I think we covered some important topics, not only for COOs specifically, but for any RA owner looking to scale their business and move their firm to the next level. I also recorded a solo intro episode available on our website that details what led to the launching of this podcast and what we hope to achieve here with the COO Roundtable. Today, this is the second part of our inaugural interview series featuring two more chief operating officers that we highlighted in our recent white paper, Exploring the Benefits of Professional Management for RIAs, A Deeper Look into Chief Operating Officers. So without further ado, I'm very excited to introduce Gary Bonner of Avalon Advisors and Mike Lee of Lord Murray. Gary and Mike, thank you both for joining today. Thank you, Matt. Thanks, Matt, for having us. Absolutely. So, Gary, I'll start with you. Uh, Avalon is about to hit its 20th anniversary. Uh, could you provide us a little background on the firm? Uh, sure. Uh, Avalon, uh, we're actually coming up on 18 years in April. Uh, Avalon started uh, back in 2001 when three of uh, the founding partners who were investors uh, in a previous deal that I was part of decided to leave Morgan Stanley with about $450 million and a group of clients and to go off on their own to uh, start their own investment advisory firm. Uh, we've now grown from that $450 million with 10 of us on folding tables at the time uh, to 66 employees and two offices managing just around $8 billion in AUM. Fantastic. And Mike, why don't you tell us a little bit about Lord Murray? So Lord Murray is in its 13th year of operation. We're hoping it's the luckiest. Uh, <laughs> back in 2006, the founder, Blaine Lord, uh, he uh, decided he was you know, done with the wirehouse. Uh, he always uses the word chicanery, which I happen to be pretty fond of that word, and uh, brought a, a small team of three people with him and started the firm with about $300 million in assets. And since then, we've gone through a lot of different cycles, added people, um, small mergers here and there, addition of a partner, and we're hovering around $4 billion in assets at the end of last year. And, um, you know, 26 people, two, two offices, and, and we're still feel like a startup. You feel like a startup, but with those numbers, you are one of the larger uh, RAs in the country. So that's, uh, that's fantastic. Uh, from the first interview we did with uh, Tony and Jeff, I told them, uh, uh, we, we discussed that as a kid, I thought I was going to grow up and be the third baseman for the California Angels. And then when I hit my uh, teenage years, I thought I was going to grow up to be Eddie Van Halen. <laughs> uh, no one really grows up thinking as a kid, they think they're going to be a chief operating officer for a registered investment advisor. So I'm always fascinated by people's stories of how they landed in, in this role. Uh, so, Mike, why don't you tell us how you came to be the COO at Lord Murray? I know from our interview you and I did for our white paper, uh, you had an interesting background before you got into wealth management. So why don't you tell us that story? Yeah, and I think uh, I hear a lot, of, a lot of similar kind of patterns with colleagues around the industry. I definitely didn't start in finance or even contemplate a career in finance. I went to school for mechanical engineering at Purdue. 
uh, thinking I was going to follow in the footsteps of my father, who was an engineer, and then quickly realized I didn't want to redesign bolts for bridges for 30 years of my life. So I got into the consulting business with Pricewaterhouse. So I spent about 10 years in consulting at Pricewaterhouse and a, a few other firms. And, you know, as part of that journey, I got to experience and witness firsthand how a lot of different industries work, how the business runs, operates, everything from technology to to finance and strategy and marketing exposure uh, across the different industries. So uh, at some point in about 2004, I was more in a sales role with consulting. So I started pitching projects. And one of the projects I came across that we, we happened to close was with a fund company called Dimensional Fund Advisors. And at that point, I was kind of tired of the road life, as, as I'm sure uh, you guys can both probably relate. A big road warrior, not having any kind of a life or or pattern to your life. So I said, all right, I think it's time I get a real job and go into a industry. Uh, and at the time, finance and healthcare were very hot areas. So uh, given that I had sold a project to DSA, I got to see the intricacies of how they worked and and some of the some of the uniqueness of how they manage investments and money. And I, I effectively forced my way into that into that company and fast forward about four years with DSA, uh, I had an opportunity to, to go more on the retail side of the business, the advisory side and met Blaine interviewed with him for about an hour, said about 12 words. And, you know, a few days later he said I was hired. So, but you weren't, I don't think you were hired as COO, right? Where didn't you start as an advisor first? No, actually I was uh, hired as a COO and at the time, I think the the definition or the perception of the role was very different than what it's become now. Mm -hmm. Fast forwarding 10 years, uh, we were a firm of four people. My predecessor had the COO title, but I think he was at the time a very just talented, glorified, uh, do everything I don't want to do guy, you know, from Blaine's yeah. perspective. And he was and he was great at technology. He understood finance and accounting. Um, he understood systems, he understood investments and marketing. So he was a good jack of all trades type of resource that really set the, set, set the uh, foundational pieces in, in place here. When I joined three years later, um, I think, you know, some of the things that he shared with me on the way out was, you know, like I, I'm really good at starting things and I'm good at researching, but I felt like your background was apropos for scaling the business and, and making it more institutionalized. So we had a really friendly and good handoff and, and I still keep in touch with him and I'm very grateful for, you know, the path that he, he established here. Uh, but yeah, from the day one, you know, with the, with the strong bent towards technology and, and, and order and process, uh, I was hired a COO to basically handle everything that the CEO didn't want to handle. Yep. That's what they tell every entrepreneur to do: hire for what you don't like and what you're not good at. So that's that's perfect, and and that that is a a perfect analogy for the CEO role. Um, so that that's uh, that's great. Um, so you joined three years after the launching of the firm, Gary. Much like I was at Luminous Capital, you were basically employee zero at, at Avalon uh, back in 2001. So why don't you tell us how how um, you you joined and and uh, became 
the COO to where you are today, how that's evolved? My, my background is uh, similar uh, to Mike's in terms of starting with consulting. So I, uh, my degree is in economics from Texas A&M uh, University. Uh, my first job out of college was in the consulting division of Arthur Anderson, which the first week I was there uh, split off to become what was known as Anderson Consulting, now, uh, now Accenture. So I spent a few years in consulting, uh, doing the traveling thing as well. Um, you know, and uh, moved on uh, from consulting into three uh, separate startup companies before Avalon. Uh, I have a tendency to like doing different things, uh, whether it's technology or operations. So um, w one of my jobs just prior to Avalon, the, the startup that I was part of, was uh, a men's custom clothing company that used technology uh, and retail to develop a men's custom suit uh, in seven to 10 days from, measure, uh, from measurement to delivery, which compared to you know, six weeks, which is the standard, standard Savile Row uh, model, uh, it was revolutionary. So we raised uh, about $2.7 million uh, from EDS. Uh, and then we also had uh, a group of investors who put money in. Uh, this was during uh, kind of the dot-com days where people were just throwing money at everything. So we, uh, we you know, pulled in financing, started a company, built it from three of us to uh, 500 through an acquisition of um, a 63-year-old company called The Custom Shop with 57 locations. Uh, unfortunately, we, we started a suit company uh, when everything in the world became business casual. So, <laughs> uh, so it was definitely uh, not the time to start a suit company or a custom shirt company. Uh, but out of that, I have uh, a closet full of custom suits. So that, <laughs> that worked out well. Um, we, we shut that down uh, in February of 2000. Uh, three of my partners here at Avalon were investors in the startup company then. Uh, and one of them reached out to me saying, hey, I know your skill set and know what you're capable of doing. Uh, would you help us start our firm? So I tell people that I, I felt that I should be an indentured servant for seven years to pay back what I lost. But, uh, you know, 18 years later, I'm still here. Yep. Uh, and so uh, it's it's been a great ride for the last 18 years, but it's just it's one of those things because I uh, I had the capability and the interest of doing multiple things. You know, we started Avalon, um, you know, uh, with with them leaving their offices and Morgan Stanley coming up about three floors in the elevator to our temporary space. And they had everything from technology to benefits and payroll in place um, when they arrived. So, And even using 18 years as the denominator, uh, you guys have grown faster than most. So as the COO, who's one of your many jobs is to keep the, the racetrack from careening into a, a, a wall going around the fast corners, <laughs> uh, what challenges has that massive growth um, brought to you in that specific role and just your, your ops team in general? Um, ma managing the growth is uh, is a challenge. Um, you know, growing from 10 people to 66. Uh, we've done uh, two small acquisitions um, in 2013 and 2016, where we picked up two employees and five employees, uh, and and just ensuring that the culture uh, is right for 
you know, the acquisitions uh, and, and integrating them into Avalon um, is always something that we're, we're uh, cognizant of and want to make sure that that works out well. Um, I, I think having um, just a technology stack that uh, can anticipate what we have now and what we need uh, is always a challenge in trying to stay ahead, not bleeding edge or leading edge, but at least uh, towards the front of the pack in terms of what we uh, have internally, something that's proven uh, and not something that's uh, maybe a guess. Uh, you know, w uh, we've had instances where we've spent money on technology that didn't work out and that's just expensive and a lesson learned, but you don't want to do that twice. Uh, so we've um, we've had challenges there, but I think uh, at the end of the day, uh, our client advisors and our employees and our clients, uh, um, you know, have the benefit of of proven technology and and, and processes in place uh, while we're trying to you know mitigate the risk of cybersecurity and all the you know just the disaster recovery and business continuity planning that we that we have to have in place uh, for when you know known. Uh, uh, disasters will occur and things that we don't even anticipate occurring. Yep, absolutely. And Mike, uh, your growth has, has been just about as, as fast. Um, I think since you've joined, it was about 300 million, 400 million, up to 4 billion. How have you, how have you kept your sanity during that time? <laughs> well, that's, you're making an assumption that I've kept my sanity, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> You know, I, I think given our backgrounds, and I, I hear this a lot, um, a lot of the COOs that I, I uh, you know, speak with and, and use as sounding boards and, and unofficial advisors around the industry, a lot of them seem to have a consulting background. So uh, I'm seeing a pattern here. And I think uh, one of the things that consulting does well is it gets you used to rapid change. So you're going from project to project to project different industry, different business, different stakeholders. And I feel like that the 10 years that I've been on the retail side, uh, you know, in addition to seeing the retail side from the institutional side, uh, you know, this was an industry that's, you know, very cottage still and, and was going to go through a rapid consolidation process. I mean, everyone kind of saw it coming. The question was how. So maintaining the sanity, I think, uh, was part luck that I fell into a profession that kind of prepared me for a lot of change uh, frequently because every year I think Lord Murray has looked and felt and acted differently. So going from a small practice of investment advisory focused uh, value proposition to fast forward, you know, we're trying to be a holistic wealth management to some degree a multifamily office. And, and that requires a lot of, uh, constant recycling, if you will, and iterating through structural changes, process changes, strategic changes, personnel changes, and, and the systems and, and procedures that support that. So uh, I mentioned that I still feel like a, a startup here, even though we are one of the larger, not you know, nearly as large as Avalon, but because I feel like we still have a lot of rapid change to go to achieve where we want to be and, and feel like, okay, we are now running an institution that knows how to take care of the clients in a more scalable way. I think that's uh, that's great. I, I love the that both of you have that consulting background. And, and Mike, you say, well, talking to other CEOs, I think a lot of them are coming from a consulting background. I, while that, I think that's true, 
these successful COOs out there have, have that consultant mind. Uh, I do think, and it, it's one of the kind of goals of this podcast is to sort of shine a light on the COO role. I think the, uh, the general thought out in the RA space is, oh, COO, that's the guy that handles the technology or girl that handles the, the, the technology. And it's just, I just need somebody that understands technology. And I can even go hire somebody um, that, that programmed at IBM. They'll be a great COO because they know technology. And I, I, I'm hoping with this podcast that we're um, rising, uh, raising the, the, the view of the COO. I do think it is a, a more consultant uh, uh, process. Um, in our white paper, we highlighted three uh, three core responsibilities of a COO. One, uh, just the day-to-day administration of the firm, where you're executing the business plan and upholding the culture of the firm, um, because the advisors are usually out of the office meeting with clients and prospects. And so who are the employees reporting to? They're mostly reporting to the COO. Uh, number two, just driving workflow improvements. So that is kind of that, that general thought of, well, I just need somebody that understands technology and how data flows within our organization, et cetera. Um, and then three is HR. Um, you need, most of the time, it's the COO who's doing the recruiting, the training, uh, and making, again, a, a culture that retains employees and staff um, as the firm continues to grow. And everybody, the big goal is I want to continue to provide a high-touch service, but to a larger and larger uh, client base. So those were kind of the three high-level um, responsibilities that we identified in our, in our white paper. Um, Mike, what do you view as your primary mm-hmm. function as the COO? Yeah, so to add to what you said, Matt, I mean, I think if we can do anything from these podcasts or the white papers that you've been you've been working hard to produce is elevating the awareness with firm founders and the the rainmakers, if you will, that that have been the leadership, the traditional leadership uh, in across our industry, right? And obviously, there's no business without revenue, so we all understand the importance of the revenue generation part of the business, mm-hmm. but. When we have these conversations about, you know, what is operations, first of all, COO, uh, I try to kind of frame the, the viewpoint or the lens for folks who don't fully understand what the COO should or might be responsible for. I kind of take it back to the basics of accounting. So when, when I went to B school, we talked about, you know, operations is what a business does to generate income, right? So if you were to look at it from that lens, what exactly is the operations of the business? Well, we're now a planning firm. The planning requires people and human capital. Human capital requires support. Uh, the sophisticated uh, deliverables that we're trying to create for clients need technology. Technology needs the ability to make smart purchasing decisions and, and integration and process design so that you can integrate your strategy with the people and the technology. So uh, if there's anything that we can do to help increase the awareness of the breadth of the things that we have to integrate and be good at, uh, I would say that's that would be a great accomplishment. So to answer your question, I think the COO needs to be a very deep generalist. Mm-hmm. And we're all going to have different strengths, whether it's uh, on the human capital side or the technology side or, or packaging all of those things to provide a good service to our clients, but you definitely need to be uh, 
a broad-based deep generalist that can integrate these different dimensions of 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 company performance. I love that. I just wrote that one down. Deep generalist. I think that's 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 perfect. Uh, so, Gary, what what do you focus most of your time and energy on uh, across all of these things that you that are top priority? Uh, yeah, I agree with 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 Mike on what he had said. From you know, from the economics background, it's you know, I, I feel like there's all the factors of production that go into making uh, the firm successful. Uh, if you look at it from that perspective, basically, we oversee as a COO. Um, you know, I think that my role is essentially to kind of be the grease and the gears that keeps everything running smoothly. So of the three things that you've highlighted, I think all of them are important. Mm-hmm. Um, and I agree with Mike that, that we have to be very broad and all the things that we're good at. We may have certain things that we're really deep uh, and knowledgeable on, but we have to have a good general sense of everything uh, across the firm, uh, you know, fr- from the HR perspective, all the way through technology, through uh, customer service, through uh, just to the day-to-day admin. Um, and when you and I were talking uh, about, you know, during the white paper, when you're writing the white, white paper, you know, I, I, I said one of the things I've done, um, actually it was in our previous office space, is I hung about 95 different, you know, pictures and maps and flags <laughs> on the wall. Um, just because somebody had to do it. And so, you know, on any given day, uh, you know, I always feel like that my office door should become a revolving door instead of just a standard door because somebody's always walking in my office saying, hey, what about this? Hey, do you know? Hey, where do I go? Hey, what do I do? And it could be anything from, you know, what are we billing a client on fees to where do I go to find this document that we have in place to, hey, my computer's not working. Hey, you know, what about, you know, I, I just got this phishing email. What do I do with it? And it can be any any given thing at any given day. So, you know, I never walk into my office in the morning with anything that's that's the same as the previous day. I have certain things throughout the year that are similar, but on any given day, I'm always doing something new, which keeps me uh, engaged and interested. Um, and, 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 you know, to Mike's earlier point, you know, when People look at a COO, they say, oh, that's just a cost center. You know, uh, a breakaway firm leaving uh, to go out and start their own RIAs, you know, they're going to say, why do I need a COO? That's just going to cost me money. But, you know, I see from the opposite perspective, I see for every dollar that I can save in working with a vendor or in negotiating well with a custodian and what their fees are or negotiating a lease or negotiating uh, uh, any kind of purchase, I'm essentially saving a dollar uh, that goes, you know, that hits the bottom line at the end of the day. So, so we're, you know, which, which is basically, uh, you know, it, it is essentially, well, not revenue. It's, it's, it's just, you know, it's a contra. So, uh, so I, I feel that, you know, as a COO and, and for the COOs that I know, being able to negotiate well with vendors uh, uh, is, 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 is as important as going out and finding the next client to bring in revenue because I'm able to save the money, uh, which hits the bottom line. Well, perfect. I, I know specific examples of a COO walking out of a long planning meeting with the CEO saying, you know, what are the revenue projections for the new service that we introduced 
uh, last quarter and you walk out of the meeting and someone taps you on the shoulder and says, I moved my desk from the left side of my office to the right. Can you drill a hole right here so I can get my wires into my into the power plug right there? <laughs> and so you're mm-hmm. climbing under the desk uh, with drilling holes in, in desks. So yes, it is it is a little bit of, of, uh, of everything. So you both hit on this a little bit in your last answer. Um, uh, and it's sort of a similar tough question I'm asking where I said, well, there's three primary roles, which is most important. Um, which in your mind, uh, I'll go to Gary first, in your mind, which is more important for an RA to focus on, profits or growth? Yes. The answer is yes. Yeah, right? <laughs> it's, uh, to both of those. Yeah, it's, 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 it's growth, but in a profitable way. Uh, as one of my uh, partners uh, likes to say, you know, we can't pay out quarterly distributions to investors unless we have profits. And we don't have profits unless we're growing the assets yeah. in a profitable way. So going out and just uh, adding assets where there's no reasonable expectation of revenue uh, is not the way to grow. It would be better to grow from the investor perspective that you know the next dollar actually is generating a profit versus just showing up uh, on an AUM report when there's no revenue associated with it. So, uh, so growth, but in a profitable way. Perfect. And Mike, add your two cents to that. Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, is this a trick question, Matt? <laughs> it is, <Or> yes. <laughs> it's not a tough question. <laughs> uh, I think uh, Gary hit it on the head. Not much more to add there. I mean, we have to focus on both. I would add the the little detail that I think growth, we, we help more in an indirect capacity in the form of enablement and, and the servicing infrastructure that we oversee to to support the growth and then from a profit standpoint it's a more direct responsibility so it, it's always both and you know you can't you can't keep people happy and developing because at the end of the day we're a human capital business uh, and you can't you can't help people develop in their own careers uh, and team members develop without growing uh, because costs are going to go up whether you decide to grow or not right yep I mean, it definitely is a trick question. I don't know what the, the, the right answer is. I mean, the, the, the high-level answer obviously is both. I've talked to other COOs that have that their, their answer is slightly different in that it's, uh, it's, it's both over the long term, but in the short term, it's, it, you just have to pick where you are in your business's life cycle. So in the, in the early years, it's we just need to grab AUM at any cost. Um, and you know, there's, there's plenty of firms out there that high five each other. Oh my goodness. We just landed a hundred million dollar, uh, account, but they're not really taking into, into consideration that that specific client is paying 10 basis points <laughs> versus a $10 million account that's paying 65 basis points. So, um, but in the, you know, in the early stages, it's growth, growth, growth at any cost. And then you've sort of hit an inflection point and then it's okay. Now at this part of part of our, uh, business life cycle, we need to now start thinking about, okay, what's the bottom line? How much are we actually taking home? Um, obviously, uh, when you get into the M&A game, um, it, the, the potential buyer is looking at cash flows. And so profitability, profit margins come, become a lot more uh, important. But um, I don't know what the right answer is other than both. <laughs> um, so moving on, um, one of the, we, we've talked, several, I've brought it up several times. Oh, we hope this is the goal of the podcast. We hope this is the goal of the podcast. Well, another goal um, is just to be a resource for COOs 
um, looking for some best practices. And I'm hoping that by hearing stories from COOs like the two of you today um, and just hearing that, that everybody's facing these same challenges, it will give them some comfort. So, uh, Mike, where do you turn for peer learning and, and for sharing of best practices? So there's, there's no better um, education than people that have already gone through the same pains that you're going through. Mm-hmm. So industry, mm-hmm. industry study groups, um, I participate in a, uh, uh, a group of COOs that DFA, Dimensional Fund Advisors, has put together and have facilitated for about four years now. And it's, it's uh, the membership ranges from a $500 million firm all the way up to a 12-plus 12, 12 billion firm. So the sharing is very open, and, and everyone kind of feels – it's almost like a support group, if you will. I think you can probably uh, relate to that from your, your former life, mm-hmm. Matt. Yep. Um, and mm-hmm. and the, the amount of sharing is just tremendous because we all feel the same kind of tensions and the pain and and – being in the middle or the intersection of a of a industry that's quickly consolidating and it's populated by a lot of you know uber talented rainmakers and salespeople, uh, the value systems are not that of necessarily uh, as we as we say profits and, mm-hmm. and, and structure and operations. So uh, having that peer group of other like-minded advisor firms who are large enough to have professional COOs. Uh, has been a tremendous asset, and I also have friends in other parts of the industry that, you know, lunches and and regular sharing of of issues that are common to all businesses, and and given that the RIA business and industry is still very very young, uh, as opposed to, you know, let's look at the CPA and tax professional industry, or even the medical industry, they've already been through this type of cycle where or the key people leave large organizations and start their own practice, realize that you have to pay attention to more than just revenue. You have to develop a practice. Oh, I need a billing department for my medical practice. Oh my goodness. So there's a lot of knowledge out there. And I don't think we, quite frankly, in the COO uh, realm of the RIA industry are doing anything new, which is both comforting uh, and and frustrating at times because we see more mature industries go through this, this cycle. Uh, and uh, to answer your question, it's, it's everybody I talk to. Yeah. I have a specific set of industry participants that, you know, know exactly what we're going through. And I have uh, a lot of folks that are in more mature industries that, you know, already have best laid practices and, and I can aspire to, you know, get to that point in our business. I think I, you know, everybody talks about it, especially because most of this industry has come from the wirehouses and everybody talks about uh, the RA industry seems to be very collegial. And especially in, when you're talking operations um, uh, decisions and, and challenges, I think uh, um, one of the things I really do love about this industry is you can pick up the phone and call uh, you know, everybody kind of knows who the big RIAs are. You can find ones that are roughly your size and you can pick up the phone out of the blue and, and call another COO. And I think they're, they're always um, 
willing to, to talk. Maybe not marketing strategies from one RA to another. Hey, this is our niche and this is how we're going about finding those clients. Maybe that gets a little competitive. But specifically on, on operations, I think that, that the space does a good job. But you have to be very proactive and, and pick up that phone and, and, uh, and dial. <laughs> um, so, Gary, where do, where do you turn for help? Uh, I have a group of uh, about 22 uh, COOs and CCOs. Uh, and we serve together on the Fidelity Service Steering Committee, uh, which is how I know uh, Tony Cron. And also uh, from Mike's firm, Lord Murray, I, I work with uh, Joe Young, who's also on the committee. So we meet twice a year uh, in person to do uh, just a review for two days, kind of best practices, uh, things that are going on, things that are, uh, you know, maybe that Fidelity wants to roll out that they'd like to get our opinion on before they roll them out. But more often than not, uh, we, uh, we will email or call amongst our group uh, throughout the year uh, just to get a sense of, hey, I'm thinking about doing this, you know, who has experience or who, who do you use or, uh, you know, how have you done it uh, within your firm? And I think that the kind of the meeting after the meeting or the meetings between meetings uh, with the calls and with the emails uh, really provides a, a kind of a really rich uh, environment in which to exchange ideas. And, you know, uh, as you said, we're not, nobody's in the, you know, we're not exchanging marketing plans because we're all actually all in different geographic area, areas. But, but on the operations side, everybody knows somebody who knows something that you might need. And so just, um, you know, being able to have that conversation and those emails uh, is very helpful uh, for me uh, and the role that I have. Fantastic. So, my last question, uh, we've talked a lot throughout this conversation of, of how many different responsibilities that you're juggling on a, on a day-to-day basis. So at the end of the day, uh, Mike, when you're driving home in LA traffic, uh, how do you declare a particular day a success? Well, as you know, Matt, in LA traffic, you can solve the world's problems <laughs> in, during your commute. So, yeah. so that's... Uh, that's a daily ritual, but <laughs> no one else is listening, so uh, the problems still remain. That said, you know, I, I try to approach my my kind of day to day and long term um, together. So I think it's important for COOs to have a long term vision. I know that's traditionally something that people expect from a CEO, but uh, being the engineering kind of mindset, I need to. I need to have an end state that I'm going towards. I don't need it to be a fixed goal, but uh, I need to know that we're trying to become a 10, 20, $30 billion AUM RIA with certain set of capabilities that will be appropriate and the scale and the structure to be able to support a business of that size. So on a day-to-day tactical standpoint, I want to make sure that I'm, reshuffling my priorities to be, uh, you know, in congruence with that long-term goal. So I have a daily ritual where I list out whether it's a client related, corporate M&A or what have you, special projects related things that I'm always writing down. And it might be repetitive for some people, but I try to keep a daily tactical list of things to focus on. And if I can knock out some of those or make progress on some of those things that i I, I list out daily, then I feel pretty good about uh, the day and call it a success. Perfect. 
So Gary, uh, what has to happen on, on a particular day for you in order for you to declare it a success? I, I'm a big believer in checklists. Um, uh, there's a great book called The Checklist Manifesto that uh, I probably could have written, but it's one of those <laughs> things I really like, checklists. So uh, I, I make a checklist of, of everything that I do, uh, whether it's just a to-do list. Uh, I have a checklist for when I go on vacation of things to pack. I have a checklist for you know, quarter-end procedures for billing. Uh, and uh, like Mike, if I can you know, knock off a few of those uh, items throughout the day uh, while doing uh, kind of a normal you know, day-to-day job, I think that that's successful. And I, and, and I guess two questions that I, I like to answer at the end of the day, or at least by the end of the week is, um, you know, I, am I doing things today or have I done things today that help us to continue to be um, profitable and sustainable as a business, but also at the same time, you know, protecting our clients, our employees and our business from, you know, known threats and uh, things that can go wrong. Um, you know, I, I, I like Andy Grove's, you know, only the paranoid survive. Mm-hmm. So, you know, whether it's de- developing the business continuity plan or disaster recovery with, you know, this this could happen or this might happen. Not that you ever want those things to happen, but but just planning ahead and, and having kind of that long term vision of if something goes wrong, what happens? Uh, and, and, and then what then what's the checklist for the next steps? So that that's that's how I kind of run my day to day, week to week, even month and quarterly, uh, um, you know, list of things to do is, is just off of, off of checklists. Yeah. That's fantastic. I did not know you were going to, you're here. Yeah. <laughs> I did not know you were going to mention that book. I have read that book and, uh, I, I, th- I think that that is the one of the perfect books for a COO, because I said earlier, um, at a high level, the goal of, of any RIA is how do we provide a, a similar experience, a high touch experience for our clients across a, you know more and more and more clients. And the only way you're going to do that is by having set processes and, and checklists. So yes, I know that you were answering the question of how do you look at yourself specifically, and those are checklists really for yourself. But but the COO, I'm going off on a tangent here, but the COO. Um, that's one of, in my opinion, that's one of the big things that a CEO needs to do is implement checklists and processes in all the different segments of, of the, the business, because that's how every client gets a similar experience. Um, uh, as you add more and more clients, you just too, too much is going to slip through the cracks. So that is a fantastic book, the checklist manifesto. So uh, this has been fantastic. I cannot thank you both enough. Um, we really did hit on one of my main goals of this podcast is just discussing the breadth of, of knowledge that COOs need, all the different day-to-day tasks that you need to be juggling. Um, so I, I can't thank you both enough for sharing your, your thoughts with us today. Uh, thanks thank for letting us in, uh, participate in this project. If this can help some suffering COO out there, <laughs> Uh, even just a little bit, uh, we're, I'm happy to do it. Fantastic. Thanks, Matt. This, this has been really great. Awesome. Thank you both so much, podcast listeners. Thank you again for listening to another episode of the COO Roundtable. Uh, if you're getting value from these conversations, I hope you are. Uh, please tell your coworkers and anyone else you think could benefit from this content. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast uh, on our website, pfiadvisors.com. You can also listen to it on iTunes or Google Play. Uh, our next interview is going to feature two operations professionals from the same firm. 
Uh, Trevor Chuna from Sequoia Financial Group, he was highlighted um, also in our COO white paper. He will be joined by Sean Kapazinski, uh, who is the Director of Operations at Sequoia. Their firm has five office locations, close to 70 employees. So Trevor and Sean will be sharing some of the technology initiatives they've had to implement to successfully navigate the, the sheer size of their firm. Um, and Sean will also be detailing a networking group that he has put together to help broaden the education for COOs. Thanks again for listening, and we will talk to you soon.